Hey, I'm Johnny King, and I'm a life enthusiast, growth mentor, and lifestyle fulfillment coach. I've dedicated my life to helping anyone who feels like they're not making the most of their potential to level up and live the legendary life of their dreams. You deserve to be the king or queen of your own kingdom, and I'll be here to help you be the best version of you that you can be. I'm glad you're here, so let's get to it. Hey, welcome to the Johnny King Show. I'm here with my man, Rob Bowman. What's happening? And we're uh, just kicking in my place. Um, I met him through my men's, my men's groups. Yeah. Or online. Yeah, it was online. I saw your online stuff. I was like, oh, this is intriguing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, Let's see what this guy's up to. And you're doing some good stuff. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he was just most recently a guest speaker at one of my Meeting of Men events here in Denver, Colorado. Um, and he killed it. Really, really cool. Uh, how he's helping men through sobriety, uh, through <clears throat> substance abuse, if you will, through uh, a lot of things that he's personally been through, which is why I wanted to bring him on the show and chat about his story, uh, because it all revolves around, you know, being a man and masculinity and, and finding and losing, or losing and finding ourselves. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. And, all and then losing things. ourselves again and finding ourselves. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So... Um, why don't we just kind of jump into it? Share the the Cliff Notes version of yeah. your story, and then maybe we can find different little points to, to dig in with. Uh, yeah, because it's a crazy story. Yeah, for sure. Well, even even have, I have a twelve year old son, so it's like you know seeing him and like the stuff I went through, and yeah. like no one ever talked to me about like what it was like to be a man or mm. make mistakes, get up and you know get back on track too. Um, but yeah, I mean if you if you look at kind of like the rap sheet of my life, you know, as a connection point for people that are listening, we can we can add in. Uh, Divorce, addiction, substance abuse, gambling yeah. addiction, bankruptcy, yeah. prison, mental health, mental mm-hmm. breakdowns, mm-hmm. Um, new marriage. You know, we're just we're just working through life struggles. But it's like when you go through it, it's like all those are just experiences that brought me to where I am like today. Mm-hmm. So I'm grateful for all those, as hard as they were to get through. Um, I mean, it just allows me to connect with guys on such a a, a different level, just being real and authentic and. There's no shame or guilt in my entire story. It's just, it is the story. Well, I think that's that's the part that I really resonate with and why I appreciate you so much and respect you is that most guys, given maybe two of those eight items, yeah, yeah. would have had enough reason to give up. Oh, yeah. And even if they didn't like end their lives, they, they would have at least like said, screw it. Why even try? Yeah. Why keep uh, driving? And you're still continuing to drive and, and add value and support men and do all those things. So... Yeah, I really respect that. Yeah, thanks, man. I mean, it's and dealing with anxiety and you know not clinical anxiety or clinical depression, but knowing that that's the journey too, and yeah. you know suicide ideation throughout the years too. Just like it, it is hard, it's not worth it. I may as well just drive my car through the guardrail mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that. And mm-hmm. um, you know that I, I was joking a few nights ago talking to a friend of mine another thing, and I was like, I don't even think I could kill myself well. Which is sad to say. So, I mean, I say this out there. If anyone's on the, listening right now and you are in these moments of contemplation, just please reach out to someone for help like now. Yeah. Um, because you never really know when that kind of kind of turn into turn into a moment. But, um, yeah. you know, I mean, for me, it's like, you know, I grew up in a Christian home, was given Christian values. And so, you know, intelligently kind of know right from wrong and what yeah. to do. Like, yeah. you know, if I get drunk, I can get in trouble. You know, if I spend more money than I have, I'll go into debt. Mm-hmm. All those things, but when I was 14 years old, I mean, alcohol, I, I loved it. I started drinking, and it was like alcohol became my master for the next 15 years. Mm. So from 14 to 29, you can just insert things in here, like, you know, 
almost got kicked out of college a couple of times because of my drinking, several MIPs, mm-hmm. overnights in jails. Mm-hmm. But none of that stuff, in a weird way, just really didn't shake me up too much. What Was there anything that uh, provoked or, like, impetus for drinking when you were 14? There really wasn't. Like so You hear some people's stories and there was like a traumatic moment, something, yeah. like an abuse yeah. or something. But I mean, I, alcohol was around my family a majority of my life. Mm-hmm. I got alcoholics on both sides, some in recovery, some died, some died sober. So it's all over the place. But just knowing alcohol was socially acceptable. Mm-hmm. But I just remember that first time I drank and the guy, it was like secretive. It was at this Christian youth event and this guy was like, hey Loman, I've got you know a six pack of beer you want to go through the, the bushes and drink it with me. And there were two girls and I'm like, yeah, highly insecure kid. Let's do this. Yeah, you know? Yeah. And I just was like, drank it, drank it. Drank. And it was just like three. I just chugged them. I remember that. And it was like, Oh, I could relax. Huh. And it was just, and, and, and again, it wasn't anything crazy that happened in my life. It was just my body, brain, whatever. I feel like I was just wired for alcohol. Yeah. And then it became <clears throat> alcohol and drugs. Well, it also immediately, it sounds like it immediately gave you some type of relief. Oh, yeah. Stress relief. Oh, yeah. Completely. Yeah. And, and, and again, I was like your funny, goofy kid. Like, I would knock on your door and sell magazines, and everyone's like, okay, Rob, what are you selling this time? Yeah. So I was a really outgoing kid, but there was just something inside of me that never really felt, I don't, just, I don't know, disconnected or whatever you want to say, but it was, uh, alcohol gave me that connection point with people. How was your relationship with your father? Uh, it was good. My dad was, um, I love my dad. He's a great dad. Um, he was just, he was distant yeah. a lot of times, you know, like a lot of men of my generation, yeah. the fathers were, yeah. you know, my grandpa was a real successful doctor and mm-hmm. they had affluency and, and it was kind of one of those things just kind of, okay, go do whatever you need to do, but don't make a lot of noise cause we're busy. Yeah. And I didn't get that message from my dad to go do what you need to do. Just be quiet. But he was just, um, busy, distracted. I don't, I don't feel like in my dad's, I don't feel like he felt like he had the goods to be a good dad in some mm-hmm. ways, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was just that reservation piece, but yeah, he was, uh, yeah. And he, again, great dad taught me a lot, but I just, he was just kind of not emotionally there a ton. Not tooled. Not tooled. And I remember one time, like in my own recovery, I really wanted to like know a lot about my childhood. Yeah. Cause I don't remember a lot of it. Yeah. I remember like negative stuff not from parents yeah. but just moments but I was at a Lowe's uh, I was actually a Home Depot in Fort Worth Texas I was going back to you know I was going to propose to my you know now wife and I just really wanted to know like more about my childhood mm-hmm. and so we went to Home Depot and he wanted 10 bags of soil and I was like okay and, and all of a sudden God just impressed on my heart to say okay dad for each bag of soil I give you tell me one thing about my childhood mm-hmm. and he was like like breaks, you know, just like that, that put anxiety in him. And it was the first bag. He's like, Oh, you were a goofy, funny kid. And then about the third bag, he was just like, you know, I got to admit, like I really wasn't that emotionally present. Mm-hmm. And so I can't answer these questions. Mm-hmm. And that was hard for him, but it was like in that moment, <clears throat> like we bonded and it was like, it's been a completely different relationship with my dad since then. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Like a vulnerable, vulnerable moment of kind of not calling him on the carpet per se, but just having him come to the awareness that like, Oh yeah, he probably was just so in his own head yeah. all his life that he you know, just thought that providing for you probably financially was enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it was, you know, he went through his own career transitions in his life. He had times of unemployment. It was just kind of like, I think it was age at that time or whatever. Yeah. But, but it was in that moment, I think it was just kind of like, we 
we saw each other differently. Yeah. Like I saw my dad as just a, an amazing man that just, I don't know, didn't have a whole lot of that confidence. Mm -hmm. And then it was just me as a son wanting to connect mm -hmm. with my dad more. Because mm -hmm. I had, I mean, he, he even told me once, he's like, you know, well, when I was ready to like step up and kind of like really be your dad, like whatever, 16, 17, whatever, he's like, you had already checked out. And he was right. Like it didn't, I just had already kind of discounted a lot of things. Mm -hmm. but, um, but I mean, I was a chameleon too, so I could maneuver my way around most, most situations with different right. types of people. Right. Well, you know how statistically it says, and I don't know if this is completely accurate, but I've read this in a few different places that the majority of... 85% of our life stories that we create about who we are that supports uh, our sense of like masculinity or, or our blueprint for who we are is established between the ages of 6 and 10. Right. So by the time he hit you up at like 16 or 17, like you said, you were already like 95% of your blueprint was already established yeah. and you were on your, your trajectory. That's a scary thing to hear because my son's 12. Mm. And I know you know my story, we'll get into that a little bit mm -hmm. too, but with, you know, with going to prison mm -hmm. a little bit, he's got these really, he's starting to put some of the pieces together a little bit. Mm. And I've always told him, I was like, you know, son, it's not that I'm hiding anything. I'm more than willing to share my story, our story with you, but your sister's younger, <coughs> but your sister's younger. Mm -hmm. And so my thing is like, she needs to be ready, but is that depriving him? And so he has this curiosity now mm -hmm. of wanting to know. Mm -hmm. And that happened when he was, that was what, two, he was born in 07, that happened in 12. So yeah, he was like seven years oldish, right in the middle of that six to 10 year range, you know? Yeah. yeah. And he's been curious kind of ever since. Yeah. And so, but I've let him know that the door will be open and I'm willing to share with you. Mm -hmm. If you ever hear anything, come talk to me, like we'll mm -hmm. dive into it. But I, hmm. yeah, my wife kind of feels like that point's coming. And so we're seeking counsel and wisdom to say, how do you present information to one child but not the younger child. Mm -hmm. And then the younger child later can find out, well, you've known that for how long? Yeah. And they feel gypped out. So sure. I'm really trying to seek like professional wisdom. Say, hey, what do you, what is your opinion smart. on this? Smart, smart, Again, getting the tools. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm not just going to jump into it. To, hey, guess what happened? It's like, what? You know, we're freaking out. And then, and then, but to, to damage things. But, you know, right now you just show them as much love. I'm real involved. Yeah. And yeah. like I'm not the... The generation of my parents and the parents before that, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know. So I think that's the cool part again is is to see applicably that you are seeking out the tools because a we have them now in this information age, you know, yeah. where <clears throat> that was a big part of me forgiving my dad too with his absence for most of my childhood was just like you know what, again and his father too. Th these past generations have all done the best they could mm -hmm. with the tools that they had, which in many cases was just surviving, yeah. you know, whether it be through the Great Depression or World War II or even further back. It's just yeah. like we are just now in a society in a time where we have so much abundance that we're doing stuff like this. Yeah. This is, this is that, awesome. That yeah. we can actually have the bandwidth to have conversations where normally we'd be out working the fields or yeah. having to work hard because for whatever reasons to, to provide for our family. Not that we're not working hard. Right, yeah. <clears throat> but it's a completely different time. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. So, yeah. jump me back into your story. Yeah. So, um, I'll just say 14 to 29 was just drinking drugs, sex, just kind of all that stuff, mm -hmm. you know. And, and you can just imagine and fill in the blanks mm -hmm. along the way. But there's also a lot of being lost, you know, from who am I? Mm -hmm. Becoming an empty shell, even though outside I looked good. Like, at the end of my drinking career, I mean, 
you know, I was running half marathons. I had a bunch of girlfriends. I had a good job that paid well, you yeah. know. Yeah. So, like, from a, and I was having fun, yeah. perceived fun, right? Yeah. But in the midst of that, you know, I would be going to the bars and the casino, the bars at night and closing the bars down in Fort Wayne, Indiana, the thriving metropolis. <laughs> and that's actually the second largest city in Indiana, for those who don't yeah. know that. But, you know, I'd be at the bars and close them down at one thirty or 2 in the morning. And then I would drive two and a half to three hours to a casino, you know, on the way to Chicago and then come home. And in the, in the scary part of that was, I mean, like I would wake up and there would just be like poker chips in my pocket or on the bed or on my counter. And I'm like, oh man, I did it again. <laughs> and I wouldn't even remember going. Wow. And that's seven, eight hour, nine hour blackouts coming home and then just going like straight to work. And I worked for my uncle Jim. You know, and it was just this crazy cycle. But in the wow. midst of this, like, I was changing because I really, like, wanted to not live the way I was living. Because mm-hmm. my the thoughts I had in my head were just chaotic. Now I understand what they were. It was these thoughts of suicide ideation. Explain that to someone who doesn't know what that is. So it's, <clears throat> so for me, it was, you know, like driving down the highway the next day after a night out or whatever. And I'd be driving down, you know, going 65 miles an hour, driving in my lane. And then all of a sudden, this and this did not happen, by the way, for you listening, but in my what I saw, the vision I saw, I was like my car would veer off mm-hmm. and like there'd be a median or a big mm-hmm. pylon or something. I would just take my car and run into it and just blow up and I'd be dead. Mm-hmm. And I would actually see myself like dead, mm-hmm. which they say that's a lot of suicide ideation. You can actually see yourself dead from mm-hmm. an act you just did. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I wanted to do it, but I was just so dark and empty inside yeah. that... That was what was building, and it was like, I didn't tell anyone, because if I came and told you, said, hey, guess what, last night I was driving down and I saw myself kill myself, you'd probably look at me like, okay, yeah. hey, Fred, you go, you go, you know, yeah. like, discount yeah. me, right? Yeah, for sure. So it was scary, but I really had been wanting more and more and more, and so I started going, like, back to church, because I grew up going to church, and I always felt like God was always there, but just, you know, I lived the life I was going to live. Yeah. And I'd go to church, and it would be like, the pastor would be saying, like, you need to get your finances in order and I and, but he wasn't saying that I was just like yeah I know like I need to get my life in order and um, like if, if if I could walk around with like a probably most of us in the world but a video camera attached to my brain and you could see all my thoughts mm. I, I think all of us would avoid each other and just stay in our houses because there was crazy stuff going on out there but so for me it was, it was it was just one night you know I was hanging out with a buddy of mine Sean at this bar in Fort Wayne and keep in mind, like, I went out, like, eight nights a week, you know, and I partied all day, and mm-hmm. I was in sales and marketing. So mm-hmm. I could drink the equivalent of, like, two bottles of scotch in a day. Mm-hmm. But not every day. I could drink a half a beer. I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to go home. So it was just kind of whatever the, mm-hmm. the day was. Mm-hmm. And But I was hanging out in the bar this evening, and it was girls everywhere. It was music. And then in my head, what happened is the entire bar got completely dead silent. And then I audibly heard the words, you're done. Mm-hmm. And then the bar got totally loud again. <clears throat> you can edit that part out. Yeah. Um, but in the midst of that, like I looked at my buddy Sean and I just said, "Hey, like I got to go home. I don't know what just happened. But I think I'm done drinking." Mm-hmm. And he snickered a little bit, you know, kind of because we always talked about like we got to stop this behavior. And I drove home and I was like sober and drunk at the same time. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> like something's going on. I don't know what it is. And went home to my one bedroom apartment back in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And I always joked, like, as a good bachelor, I had a workout gym in the middle of my living room, you know. And uh, but I walked right past my dog after about 15 flights of stairs or 15 stairs. Put about 350 pounds on the barbell. 
picked up that barbell and just dropped it. And that was going to be my out in mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. yeah. Nothing that was planned, just something that was happening. Mm -hmm. Right? And uh, But in the midst of that, me picking up and, and unhinging my elbows, which when there's you know 100 more pounds, 125 more pounds than you can actually do on your own, normally it would come crashing down on you, right? But I just know and I believe for me and my story that that was God that held that bar mm -hmm. and gave me those milliseconds of thought of just like looking down at my, at my knee and my dog was nudging my leg mm -hmm. and just looking at me with that head tilt thing mm -hmm. and those deep eyes and just like, like, Dad, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. And I immediately thought, like, what am I doing? Like, who's yeah. going to feed you tomorrow? Yeah. And in that moment of clarity, you know, and again, I believe it was God held that bar and put it back on the rack. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I can see this happening every single time I tell this story. Mm -hmm. It never loses its power or impact on me whatsoever, cool. you know. Yeah. And in that moment of clarity, you know, I feel like God just swooped me up and said, okay, you're going to be fine. I felt different. I poured out two full bottles of scotch, you know, like. Sixty dollar bottles of scotch because I had to be really cool drinking expensive scotch in my own house. Yeah, you know I didn't have a ton of people over to party a lot either. Right, right. Um, but it was in that moment, and I slept in peace that night, and I made that phone call. So parents out there that have been praying for your kids to stop drinking and drugging, parents now that are praying for your parents, hmm. like whatever, praying for somebody. Yeah, yeah. I just believe God's listening. And <clears throat> this was the answer prayer because I called my parents. I meant to call my aunt who'd been sober. 30, like 25 years at the time, I think is what it was. Um, but that was the call my mom had been waiting on. Mm. And I cried, and she cried for like an hour. Mm. And I just said, hey, I can't quit drinking and gambling. I need help. Mm -hmm. and then my aunt picked me up and took me to a 12-step fellowship meeting there in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Wow. Went Parked on the street, went walked right through the bar <laughs> to the back room where they had their AA meeting. Oh, well, I was trying to leave that out of there, the 12-step meeting. Because yeah. um, in... in, in the world of AA, we talk about you know keeping this out of press, radio, and films. Yeah. Um, but people draw their own conclusions. So, um, anyway, twelve said me went back there, and people were happy. And mm. man, I just bought in. I was just, I'm like one of those extreme guys, like I'm in and just stop everything. Yeah. And I was just in, and I was happy, mm. and I was in sober community, and that's what it's about, like finding community in recovery, mm -hmm. or not even in recovery, just life in general, like right. doing what you do with your brotherhood. It's right. like. Finding men, people in recovery to do life with that share the same hopes. question I have for you that I feel like if I were listening to this too and, and I were really struggling um, in any type of substance abuse would be like, A, I haven't heard that audible, you're done. You know, right. B, life, I'm still like, I, have, I don't feel like I've hit rock bottom yet. Do I have to hit rock bottom for me to actually change? And how ugly is that going to look, you know? So I feel like when, when I've been on that downward spiral too, I'm like, God, how, how deep is this rabbit hole going to yeah. go? How do you, I mean, is there a way to, to, to catch yourself and to cut yourself off before you hit rock bottom? Or do you feel like you have to hit rock bottom? Or, you know, I'm sure you've been asked this question yeah. before, but. Well, I feel like you can, it's a good question too. Because yeah. people are like, well, Perry will say, well, he hasn't hit rock bottom yet. I'm like, you know what? The elevator goes down and you can hit any button you want. You can yeah. get off the elevator anytime you want yeah. to. Yeah. And and addicts and people that suffer from substance abuse, gambling, porn, really whatever it is, mm -hmm. have the incredible ability to hit the bottom floor where the elevator stops and we just keep going. Mm. And it's like, oh wow, there's another level. <laughs> it's like we don't have to go there. But yeah. I truly believe that when the desire is there, it'll put it this way, if, if if you're listening or anyone's listening and you're questioning 
what's rock bottom look like? Yeah. Let it be today. Yeah. Like just, it can stop like today right now, but getting the right proper help. Uh, but you know, we, as addicts, we like to go further and further and further down because we think I'll say we, cause you know, in recovery, it's like, think that, well, it's not as bad yet. Yeah. They say, well, you got three choices. You're going to be locked up, covered up or sobered up. Yeah. You know, and it was like, well, I got locked up in sobriety. So yeah. it's all about your mental health too. Yeah. So, I mean, I believe that anybody, if the desire is there, but if you're questioning, if someone listening is questioning right now, um, do I have a problem? Chances are you probably do to an extent yeah. if you're questioning it because yeah. normal drinkers, <clears throat> normal gamblers, they're just, they're not even gamblers. They're just having fun. Yeah. Normal shoppers. Yeah. Normal uh, relationship experts. Like yeah. if they're, they don't usually question things like that because it's just normal. I had a beer. I'm good. But yeah. it's like, oh, man, last night I had four and I usually just have one. Right. And I said something really mean to my wife. <laughs> Maybe it's starting to get a hold of you. Mm-hmm. So find a local local resource. You know, I'm a huge resource. You know, your resource to connect people just, it can stop today. Yeah. And just believe that. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Really cool. So then you, you know, jumping forward to <laughs> whether it be your, your prison sentence yeah. and stuff like that. Let's jump in a little bit because that's an interesting part of the story as well. Yeah, well, I mean, everything is like, I got into recovery. I loved recovery. I was yeah. Mr. Recovery, you yeah. know. I had sponsors. I had mentors again. It was like, but played softball, had a great everything. Yeah. And it's not like I was thriving. Like, the part of the recovery program I'm part of says, like, the fear of economic security will leave you. Huh. <clears throat> it doesn't say I'll be rich. It says the fear is gone. Yeah. So all these fears started going away. I was in a real good place. You know, had a lot of cool career transitions and early recovery. And then... Um, this is in your 30s? Uh, after, yeah, after yeah, yeah. So, so my thirtieth birthday was the first sober birthday I'd had in like ages. So I'm thirty years old. You know, things are going really well. Um, then you know, I end up in. There's a whole part of some. I wrote a book called The Momentum Journey. Mm. It has part of my recovery story in it. But career transitions led me to Colorado in 2004, mm-hmm. which is where I'd written my first book and did a documentary about people's lives and why they love what they do. Yeah. So I was really into people's stories. Cool. And then you know, in early recovery, I wasn't married. I got married in 2006. In early recovery, I wasn't a husband. I mean, a father. I had my first son in 2007. I wasn't a business owner. Mm-hmm. So I got into, you know, different career changes and stuff. But then it was like, okay, now I own a business. All these pressures, right? Mm-hmm. And the pressures became so great that I quit going to, like, recovery meetings. You know, because I had to get a deal done to pay rent. So now my faith and my belief in recovery is now slowly being overtaken by fear and insecurities and anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this strong thing I ha- thought I had, you know, wasn't as strong as I thought it was because I hadn't had a whole lot of obstacles mm-hmm. in my life up to that point. So I was feeling like a failure as a husband. And again, this is it has nothing to do with my wife. It's how I internalized our life. Sure. Right. Sure. So one thing I've learned this last year specifically is that. I'm with me all the time and I'm responsible for me all the time. Mm -hmm. You can say something and if it's not true, it shouldn't bother me. Mm -hmm. Right. So over time I just started believing lies about myself and started thinking I didn't have the goods. And then in, uh, December, 2000, uh, or sorry, November, this is actually interesting. October 31st, 2011, I lost my career just due to sales and production numbers. But leading up to that, this suicide ideation I mentioned before, 
was really strong because I mean I was gambling like crazy, mm. going to the casinos without telling my wife. I wasn't drinking or drugging, but I had no support around me because I wasn't sharing anything with anybody. Interesting. Because then <clears throat> isolated. As as poorly as I felt about myself, you know, even though I, my faith is still somewhere, but it's like on the shelf in a lock and key and just not trusting God with a lot of stuff at all. Um, I just really kind of gave up on myself, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I lose my career uh, October 31st, 2011. And then my wife quit her job with Mm -hmm. uh, a very, very large radio station. Um, She decided to leave because her adrenals were shot and we just weren't good. In, in her mind, she's optimistic and like, okay, good, you know, like now we can be closer to family and, you know, and trusting God in this journey. And meanwhile, I'm like, holy snikes, like what's going to happen? Yeah. And um, and I was in, if guys have ever done this before, and I, I finally met people that have done this before, but before I thought it was just me. I mean, I would be in those moments of paralysis where I just didn't know what to do next. Yeah. I'm like, there's a pile of papers. I know I need to go through them, but I can't. Mm-hmm. So this anxiety heightened stuff, I, I had no clue what was going on. But it, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, like, before I lost my um, agency in that 2011, like, I would, like, take my fist one night and I just, like, crack myself in the side of the head. Mm-hmm. And that was, like, okay, now I can function. Mm-hmm. And it was this normalized thing for me because it happened repeatedly mm-hmm. in these heightened, stressful moments. And this was, like, six months before I lost my business in 2011. But I didn't tell anyone this because I didn't know what people would think, right? right? right. So here it is again. <clears throat> Pride, paranoia, scared, just whatever. Mm-hmm. I wasn't paranoid. Let me take that word back. But um, but then I just put my nose to the grindstone and didn't process any of this. And yep. I was like working on a side business and stuff. And then February 2012 came, which is when I had my major mental breakdown. And I was just doing some weird stuff. Mm-hmm. you know. But again by myself, not telling anybody about it. And then one night I was literally sitting on my couch and I know there's probably a lot of details I don't know about my life in this point, but I was just sitting on my couch looking for a side job and, you know, looking for a a job. I mean, working on a side job, looking for a job. (laughs) And I just had this idea to get up and clean my townhouse. And in the midst of me getting up and what happened during this time period, I ended up grabbing a box of matches and lit some boxes on fire in my covered patio. You know, and someone said to me once, like, well, if you were in this mental blackout, why did you say you did it? Because I don't remember the actual act, but it was like, well, who else did? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I, I just have to come to that conclusion. Mm-hmm. And once I kind of snapped back to it, was like, I, I couldn't stop it. Yeah. You know, and, and what I've learned about myself now, which is why I encourage people to tell people, talk to people about your life and be vulnerable is... I had no clue that like clutter messed with me mm-hmm. and our whole townhouse was like in clutter mm-hmm. due to something mm-hmm. else that had happened the year before. And it was like all these little triggers, you know, yeah. a movie we watched that night was about, you know, a father that, and this isn't about me and my dad. This is just a, a different relationship. It was like just never measuring up, mm-hmm. you know, but I internalized that as I sucked, Yeah, you know? And so all these things mm-hmm. are going on and it was just this massive collapse of reasoning. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that led a, began a, a crazy journey in our life of cover up for me for a while, mm-hmm. you know, and my wife had a, a, a thought that maybe I had done this, but because like, I was like, no, I didn't do it. Like really like blatantly, like, what are you talking about? But, um, not because I do things like that because we were in a crazy place in our life, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, but then 
after I finally came clean through a series of events and talked to, opened up to her that it was me. We had to start the journey of, you know, being open with people. Yeah, right. And I hurt a lot of relationships through that because mm. I lied to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And for me, I was lying because I was trying to protect my family, not really me. Probably me too, yeah. if I look at it. Yeah. Uh, but just not knowing what was, because I knew I was going to prison. Like, there's no way. Yeah. And uh, it was that moment of clarity after several months afterwards. Like, my attorney and I kept trying to, like, turn ourselves in. But for some reason, the system wasn't opening the door to say, yeah, come on in for a conversation. <laughs> And so I could not live with the guilt of this anymore. Mm. And I was bringing all of our friends and family, and like they knew the story to support us. Yeah. And they did. Like the majority of them did. Wow. Uh, but again, I mean, it, it, it was it was a really weird place to kind of be because my attorney's like, "Don't tell anybody." I'm like, "Well, I have to tell people mm-hmm. because whatever." So in June of that year, I ended up confessing to the authorities of what I did. And I was down in Texas. One of my mentors was dying. But I was just like, okay, God, this is 100% your show. Yeah. And there was so much freedom in that mm. to just trust God to show mercy and grace on the situation and protect mm. my family. Mm. Um, that, that then they didn't, I didn't get arrested until uh, six months later. Mm. And which blows me away still. And I'm like, I told you I did it. And they didn't come get me. Yeah. Series of events that don't need to go into here, but um, I ended up getting arrested on 19 felonies and 13 misdemeanors. Mm-hmm. You know, scared the heck out of my wife and my daughter. I mean, just like when they came and got me, it was just this this weird, unorthodox moment of like I had been on the run. I'm like, you guys have known where I've been every step of the way. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, and it was our case together. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> just to speed up with that, um, God did a bunch of miracles in this whole process. I ended up getting out on bond. The, is a hundred thousand dollar bond that you know my attorney's like we'll we'll shoot for a half reduction because we didn't have the money to bail me out yeah. my parents really didn't my brother like and stuff but um through she, this judge was like an angel and she reduced our bond from a hundred thousand dollars to 25 grand mm. so 75 percent reduction and my attorney's jaw was just on the ground mm. and, and it wasn't an arrogant way but i'm like you know god is in control of this yeah like he really is like we can't determine if what a judge is going to do or uh, anything, you know. And um, got out the next day, and I just pretty much like waited tables and kind of bided my time until mm. my sentencing hearing. Mm. And uh, yeah, so in July of that year coming up was my big sentencing hearing for all this. You know, it's interesting as I hear you tell tell the story, and I and I remember <clears throat> a buddy that I went to school with in high school had like uh, a week of just losing it, you know? Um, and without going into too much storage, I remember being like, just really not all that empathetic. All right, like, yeah. What? He, he did what? He, he broke into whose house and yeah. he was attempting to steal their car. And I was like, how can you even, like I couldn't even process this. And then it happened again to him <clears throat> over like a week because we were soccer buddies uh, in college um, and lo and behold, just several years ago, I think he, you know, he had schizophrenia and he shot a few guys and in the CVS and was gone to jail for the rest of his life. Yeah. But he was, I could see that those were kind of <laughs> crying out for help, yeah. you know, or, or maybe not even crying out for help, but just like red flags of like, okay, I need some help, yeah. <clears throat> which he wasn't really getting ultimately. 
Um, but then I had a moment in college where, and this is a small thing, but it gave me so much <laughs> empathy towards him and other people who've had these kind of breakdowns. Yeah. I was playing soccer and it was the JV versus the varsity. We were in college and we had all the alumni, it was alumni weekend and everyone was just yelling on the side, like the other, the older guys. And yeah. Everyone was razzing us and we were getting crushed and I was frustrated and pissed off and I was a freshman and feeling like I was disrespected. I was so in my head as we're playing this game that at one point a guy took a shot um, and I was playing defense and all I did was just, just grab the ball in the middle of the game, Yeah. you know, out of the air. Yeah. And then I put it down, the whistle's blew, and I was in the, the goalie box, so it was a PK. Um, and my coach was like, Johnny, like, what the hell? From right. the sideline, I was like, and I, was, I remember like holding the ball being like, I don't know why I did that. Yeah. Other than I was just so lost in my own story, in my own head, I wasn't present to the moment, I was so frustrated and angry, I just wanted it to stop. Yeah. And that's when I was like, holy cow, like, none of us are, <laughs> yeah. are, uh, you know, free from having these type of things happen if you aren't intentionally kind of standing at the at the door of your mind and, and every single day kind of defending yourself against just aggressive yeah. mental suggestion, whether it be of your own or other people around you. Like, man, you have to be on your game, yeah. especially the more you get out and do publicly what you're doing because people will start hating on you and oh, giving yeah. you crap. Yeah. And that can, like, feel more and more pressure and stress, right? Yeah. So... Yeah. It all it all adds on, and even after all this, friends of mine that didn't understand, mm. like even like you'll see like other shows and stuff like that, people will comments like, "What an a hole! Why would you do that? Your family was in the house. Like you yeah. tried it, and like it's like, well, you can look at the fact of this happened, yeah, and care less about what led up to it, you know. And so now, like when I see people on TV and stuff, and they're in their orange jumpsuits and things like that, I'm like, yeah. I used to think just. I used to judge like what an idiot like that yeah. was really stupid yeah. like, why would you do something like that yeah. but now that I've been through it I'm like whenever I see someone in that crisis <clears throat> moment of, of poor decisions or something I'm like man what happened to get them there absolutely you know? absolutely 100% and if, and if we don't look at what happened I mean even you know the day that I got sentenced I mean we had I don't know I think it was like 30 something people in the courtroom with us to support us you know and it was this crazy circus of like what is going on like the I mean, just like the chief investigator who was like, you know, saying like, you know, hey, if you like, just tell me what happened and you'll never see the inside of a jail cell. <laughs> and I'm like, my wife was like, well, maybe he's here to help him. Like, whatever. Like, yeah. I'm not trusting anybody on the other side. And he came in and he was just like, this guy's a menace to society. He almost killed everyone. And like, freak, like was freaking out in the courtroom, right? And part of me, I feel like it was more of like cover up stuff because it was like, I feel like maybe I fell through the cracks. <clears throat> You know, I was wondering like, if my neighbors knew what happened six months before, what peace would that have given them? Mm-hmm. You know, there are all these things like I could like expose it. And I'm like, who cares? Like, I'm just, okay, God, you're in control. I'm not going to. And went to the quarter that day and I was looking at anywhere from four years of work release, two or four years of work release to 56 years in prison. Yeah. But I like had this weird peace about me. Scared because I was going to leave my family and just like, I didn't, For sure. I didn't really say goodbye. I really didn't say goodbye to my kids that morning. I just kind of like left. And so for them, their dad was just gone, mm. you know? And I re- that's one thing I regret, but it was like, what do I tell them? Like, hey, y'all, I, well, I won't see you later. Yeah. I don't know when I'll see you again. Yeah. You know? And, uh... But yeah, that is what you tell them. Yeah. Yeah. Which is probably better yeah. than nothing. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. But I, I think that's a great example of a father who doesn't know what to say. Your kids are looking up to your father and be like, what do you mean you didn't... 
you know, and we'll, we'll grow up into adults and be like, what do you mean you didn't have, why wouldn't you just say this and this? But in the moment, yeah. we don't always have the knowledge. Yeah. We're winging it. Not, I say we, yeah. I say, I imagine <laughs> I don't have <laughs> yeah, kids, yeah, right, yeah. but I, I have enough friends and family. So it's like a lot yeah. of it is you're winging it as parents, yeah. <laughs> trying to do better than what your parents gave you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I think anything probably would have helped, but that was part of your That was where I was at the journey. time, you know. Totally, and, totally. And just scared, scared, but yet not. But, and in there, you know, and it was, you know, the judge said, you know, we're looking at, a, you know, this is, you're, you're going to spend 13 years behind bars. Mm. And I was like, 13 wow. Years. Yeah. Because I don't, I didn't know anyone had been incarcerated before. Like, I don't know their story, how the system worked. And I'm just like, okay, well. Yeah. 13 years and then he's like but we're going to suspend one charge of eight years and you're going to spend five years in the department of corrections and you know and then right when he was giving his gavel he goes and i think this has been a misclassified case this should have been attempted murder and he hit his gavel that was the last thing we heard mm. and i was gone mm. and i remember pastor chad brugman was the last face i saw when i walked through the thing, and, and he t tells me, like, still today, it was like, he just looked, and his jaw was down, he's like, I, I didn't know what to do. Yeah. And then, um, through God's grace and his just mercy, um, I only spent ten and a half months away mm. at a minimum security prison in Delta, Colorado. Mm. And my poor wife had to be at home as a single mother, and, and really still exploring. She had to go to the mat with God and just be like, Everyone's telling me something different. Divorce him, leave him. He tried to kill me. He didn't. He's schizophrenic. He's crazy. Like what's it? Who who is this guy? Mm -hmm. You know, just what's the like, truth? what is the what what is this thing? This situation. What do I do? And and she felt like God said, you know, stay with him and love him. Mm -hmm. And that's just an amazing miracle because most <laughs> women would, most husbands or women, people yeah. on the other side would just be like, peace out, bro. Like yeah. you're freaking nuts. Yeah, you know, yeah. and. And that was just something that she chose, and I'm grateful that she did choose to do that. Because mm. it shows people that you can just give up on people. Right. Like the guy that lit the match, <clears throat> that wasn't really me. Right. You know, and so I, fortunately, but while I was gone, you know, I got to figure out who is Rob Lohman again. Mm -hmm. Like, who am I? Mm -hmm. Like, what is all this stuff? And so I got to spend my days. It was, I mean, I, I felt guilty being in there a lot because I'm like, my wife's at home, like, being a single mom. Yeah. So God bless you single mothers out there and, yeah. and, and parents of people in the services and, you know, and spouses of people in the services right. and in prison and just they're gone, right? Right. But you're still with them and so you're doing time together. Um, you're filling both roles. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she was disciplinarian. She was nurturer. She was like, she protected me so well and it was just like, she never once let out the bag like, well, your dad really screwed up our life and she like honored me mm -hmm. in that mm -hmm. and, um, and I'm grateful for that, you know, and, and when I got out, I mean, 10 and a half months of getting out, um, I feel like there were two promises God gave me in prison. One is your, your marriage is healed, you know, and two, you'll get in the halfway house the first round. Mm. And sure enough, first round of halfway house offerings, they let an arsonist into halfway house that insurance would deny a claim if it ever happened. Mm. But because my community was so amazing with, you know, I mean, Red Rocks Church and my buddy Jeff Cromendike and Don McCreevy and Jude Del Hero and just all these amazing people that, you know, supported us, Landsbox, the Taylors, just our good friends. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we made it through it. Mm -hmm. And I spent 11 months in a halfway house. And, and that was hell, you know. It was like, I, it was worse than being in prison, really. really? Why so? 
Because um, the system's set up for you to fail. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you miss, you know, you got you to tell them everywhere you are all the time. Like, so this fear, like, oh, did I call them? Didn't I call them? Like, you have these freedoms to get out and about. And you can, your family's, like, eight miles that way, but you can't just go to the house, mm-hmm. right? You have, to, you have to ask permission and earn your rights back and freedoms back and um, all that. But, you know, I mean, the food was horrible. I mean, I, I worked in a restaurant, thank goodness, but three times I got food poisoning at halfway house. Mm-hmm. You know, but, but they were set up to, like, not treat you like a human being. You're more just a number. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, you missed your bus? Oh, it snowed and the bus didn't come? Well, you better get home because if you're not home, I'm going to file an escape on you. And you know what that means? You can go back to prison for it. And they would look for reasons to bust people, not to rehabilitate people. Yeah. It's a business. Yeah. Prison is a business. Yeah. You know, I've got my own thoughts on all that stuff because I do yeah. advocacy work, but it was like halfway houses are a joke. Yeah. You know, it's just they look for ways to bust you and mm-hmm. screw your life up even more when you're really trying to get back on track. Mm. And trust me, I saw enough people that just said, now, with the wrong mentality, you can feel like a victim in the system. Yeah. But, you know, it's just trying to thrive and, and stuff like that, too, you know. And uh, but there's just a lot of challenges with being on the hook every minute of your life yeah. when you have this. Things are out of your control. Like, if yeah. a bus doesn't come, well, it wasn't my fault. Yeah. I'm not, like, screwing around, you know. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you can sit at a bus stop, but you can't even go into a 7-Eleven to get a soda because <laughs> they can file, it, like, a whatever the charge was <clears throat> because you didn't get permission to go into the 7-Eleven. And again, there are people that mess the system up mm-hmm. for that reason. But mm-hmm. when it was coming down and, and I got, uh, you know, parole was coming, you know, because it was like 2011, you know, I lost my business. 2012, I snapped. 2013, I went to prison. Mm-hmm. 2014, I get back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was like, when do I get to move home? <clears throat> right. And uh, April 15th of 2000. Uh, 15 I got to move home mm. so tax day is a big day for me on parole and stuff mm. and, and I got to move home and, and live with my wife and kids again and what was that like reintegrating into their life after they'd spent some time without you you know I mean it was I mean it was hard I mean I went in with it you know my wife's been in charge for you know since I've been gone almost mm-hmm. 20 just 22 months mm-hmm. so I had to just kind of be a part of and not assume anything like that too you know and and, and the thing that really sucks about the whole thing is that, you know, I had my own, I mean, we, I had our own struggles in our marriage that we finally got to work through before all this stuff mm-hmm. went down, right? Mm-hmm. And going to going to prison stuff, like, they didn't have, like, marriage counseling and relationship counseling. And I still had stuff. I had a process, but I didn't, you know? And so I came out, like, totally grateful for my wife staying with me and things, but I didn't express it well. Mm. You know, I didn't, I didn't express... And that's one of my regrets that I just, I don't know why. I just had blockage. Sure, you know? sure. And so, you know, so for me, I caused a lot, my, our own damage too in our marriage afterwards mm-hmm. because um, I was 100% grateful and stuff and I was just like, there was just these things that lingered in me that I never worked on. Mm. I got to know who I was. I got to know who my identity in Christ is. I got to be secure in that. Um, I wish, like, I, that's why I wish the prison systems or stuff would just be like, let us help you get whole. Mm-hmm. and really help you process this stuff. Mm-hmm. But you're in prison, you're not going to tell a lot of stuff because you're on the microscope already, right? Yeah. So, but moving home, like, I mean, I remember that day I get in the car and just, like, I didn't have my driver's license stuff yet, but just knowing that I was going home. Yeah. Pretty I mean, it was pretty... Sweet moment. Oh, it was, it was amazing, yeah. you know? And then my kids just knowing, Daddy's home. Like, yeah. And then it was like, okay, now I got to support, provide for the family, and, yeah. 
brick wall, brick wall, brick wall because of my felonies. And for me, those brick walls are opportunities to like, how do I get creative? Mm-hmm. And so eventually a friend of mine said, hey, you ever thought about getting trained to do interventions and recovery coaching? You'd be great at it. And I was like, oh, let me look into it. And I was like, I could do that. That's cool. So there's a lot of people with felonies. You start your own business. And that's what I did in uh, December 2015. And mm-hmm. yeah, I've been hitting the ground running ever since then, just trying to build a nest egg for my family. You know, mm-hmm. um, One of the collateral damages of this is when you cause property damage and you did it, there's restitution you owe. Mm-hmm. Right? That's right. So I owe $187,000 in restitution. I've paid what I can so far, like 26000 or something like that. You know, and in the process of all this, um, I got into prison advocacy work with prison fellowship and certain things like that too. Um, because for those that don't know, a um, little prison, prison tip here. So um, if you owe restitution to the state of Colorado that you... In my time, it was you know, a 12% interest rate. So you do 12%, you know, basically you're getting charged 1% a month on 187 grand, and you're making X number of dollars a month getting your life back. You're pretty much upside down every month, and there really is no way out mm-hmm. in the long run if you look at what, I make, what you make now to pay that off. And I was just like, well, why do guys after 2016 get to pay 8%? Mm-hmm. We should all pay 8%. Mm-hmm. And why are people getting charged interest when they're incarcerated? Right. So I got involved and met a bunch of senators and house reps and awesome. people along the way. Yeah. And we got a bill passed last year to get everyone that was at 12 down to 8. Mm. And there's still a lot of work to do on to, to find common ground from the yeah. victim side of things. Yeah. So I don't just sit around. I'm like a person <laughs> of action. I got a lot of plans in my life to move forward and um, that nut of... Whatever that dollar amount is, it's up to like two hundred and sixty grand already mm. with interest. Mm. It's just a number, and, and God's got a big plan, and I yeah. want to I want to make people whole. That's yeah. that's my I, that's what I obliged to. <clears throat> yeah, that's really cool. It really sounds like, again, so much of, and I and I see this too uh, in every vice that people find themselves being controlled by. Yeah, they've started using the vice because it was their way to control their pain yeah. control getting out of it. Like you said, the very first three beers that you drank, you were like, ah, oh, yeah, relax. And so it's like, that was the beginning of the hit of like, okay, I can use these vices to, to gain something. And I think that's more of what needs to be looked at is it was, there's always a cost for using. Yeah. There's always a payoff emotionally. Like, what are you really getting out of it? Um, but your, it really sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong. It really sounds like the, the genesis to, to your, transformation was surrendering letting go of control yeah. putting it into you know a higher being you yeah. know um and you know everyone that may be listening ha- everyone's gonna have different you know religious spiritual beliefs but i do feel like um you investing whether it be giving control up to god or you then investing into Fellowship and sponsorship and just giving yeah. to something greater than yourself was pretty massive for your healing. Is that right? Yeah. Well, just surrounding myself with like good mentors that breathe life into me, and then I can I have more to give other people. So it's and I don't do a great job of it. Not <clears throat> perfect. Like trying to live a balanced sure life. You know, it's like you know a lot of goals, a lot of ambitions, and yeah. that takes sacrifice too. But just continuing to learn and to, and to fight for it. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I mean, my wife and I went through a. Serious journey, you know. I mean, I, I, 
I look up to her because, you know, there's a, a, a push to like always get deeper in mm-hmm. who we are. And mm-hmm. so we finally got to get through a good season of due to a program we kind of went through that helped me out a ton to, it goes back to, again, I'm with me all the time. Right. I'm responsible for me. Right. I'm responsible for how I let you affect me. Mm-hmm. That's my, I got to own that whether it hurt or not, mm-hmm. you know? And so now that I can see that perspective in life yeah. and go forward and work through forgiveness and, and, you know, just get rid of resentments and just look at myself differently and look yeah. at my wife differently and, mm-hmm. and be that example for our kids. You, you don't just give up. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so easy to throw in the towel, mm-hmm. but then there's another person. It's a different color towel, yeah. but you can still throw it in just as easily. And, yeah. and I want to do that. You know, I don't want to be a divorced family that our kids have to go through that and yeah. stuff. And yeah. sometimes it's necessary, but you know, we're, we're in this battle together and, yeah. and we're committed. So yeah. Given with your uh, how young your children still are, how are you intentionally showing up or investing in those relationships? Because like, like you said, you were gone for almost two years yeah. in that sensitive, I mean, there's never a good time to be gone. Right, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, in a sensitive time in their upbringing and their journey, how are you working towards healing that relationship yeah. and supporting them in their growth? Yeah, well, I think part of it too is showing them how I was there when I wasn't there. Cause like when I was gone, I reached out to the school where my kids were going and said, Hey, can you send me their homework mm. ahead of time? And I would do their homework with them on the phone when I was mm. in prison, mm. you know? And it was really cool one day and my son Zeke was like, wait a minute, how do you know what the problems are? <laughs> and I was like, well, so, cause I asked your school to send me the work, Cool, you know? And so, Trying to remind them, like, I was there, but I wasn't there. Yeah. And just, I mean, I'm at their, every soccer game. I'm like, this freedom of, like, working for yourself is mm-hmm. great because there is that flexibility. And I've had to learn that balance recently of, like, I need them to go to bed because I do have stuff I need to do. Because mm-hmm. I just picked you up from school and I took you to soccer and I fed you dinner and we did homework. And I've what I've learned is when I say, I need you guys to go to bed so I can get work done, they internalize that as, like, I'm not important works more important than them and that's a that's a recent and even though i say that yeah so being just having open communication with them and again saying to my son like hey you know he's always been curious like what's the story yeah and i'm just open that up it's like hey i'm here for you you know he's going through puberty now and Mm -hmm. it's like you know those guy things you got to talk about and so Mm -hmm. you know taking him away on weekends and just talking and saying hey let's talk about so really being intentional with them Mm -hmm. and just wanting them to feel like they are a priority and in the meantime, I do have work to do. I need to get mm-hmm. stuff done, but just mm-hmm. having open communication. They're they're so pretty they're pretty open the way they communicate too. It's um, great. But I got my dad moments where it's like that was a horrible dad moment. <laughs> like that was one I just want to erase. But I can't, so I'm, I'm going to apologize. I'm going to ask for forgiveness. Make it right. Yeah. Make it right. Yeah. Yeah. How about uh, same question, but with your wife and your relationship and your marriage? Like, how are you intentionally showing up there to help mend? Anything that is. Yeah. It's, it's like now that we've kind of, I really think worked through a lot of like this, this thing we went through was amazing. Cause it was like, let's talk about the day you met and go forward in your marriage. Mm-hmm. And if there's a sticking point, you can't go forward anymore until that is dealt with. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how many of those early marriage things mm-hmm. like formed what the rest of our marriage looked like, <laughs> you know, it's just like our upbringing. Yeah. Oh yeah. You're right. Yeah. You can start off totally. as your childhood yeah. and be like, Oh, that's a sticking point. But we just keep going forward, yeah. and then they just show up more massively, probably when, yeah. when you're in a, in a relationship. That's a good point. It's like, it's, it's okay to be messy, but we got to get unstuck. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. And and a lot of that plays a role in addiction and those kind yeah. of things too. Yeah. So we've kind of, we've kind of got. I said I don't know if made it through that season, but on the other side of I think a lot of pain, mm. and now it's me um, being intentional with my wife and you know which we're not doing this yet, but it's like you know setting those date nights. Yeah. forward you know yeah getting on the same page with a lot of things which we're doing a lot better of yeah so for me it's just mm-hmm. being enter, entering into that kind of conversation something mm-hmm. that i don't want to enter into mm-hmm. so i'm getting better at it mm-hmm. you know still a ton of work to do and sure. to love her well and sure let her feel cherished and adored and mm-hmm. just all those things that our wives want yeah girlfriends husbands whatever yep. you know yep. um, but so i think it's just being more intentional now like we just got to really cool book called The Seven Seeds of Marriage written by Gary Brugman, who was a mentor of ours yep. early on. Sure. And to go through those together. Yeah. Do, just do life together. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, life changes got to roll with it, but I think we're in a better place than we've been in a very, 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 very long time. That's awesome. That's awesome. Can I hold you accountable to date nights in 2020? Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. And those are the things we're talking about, too. Yeah. It's, you know, just... Sitting down and saying, even with my kids, like yeah. date day days with my taking my son and taking yes. my daughter out yes. and my wife taking them out and and part of that rolls into financial fear sometimes too. Sure. Just like, oh my gosh, you know, I gotta take her out and, you know, and she takes it. Okay, that's gonna be like another four hundred bucks. You know, go through that. But there's tons of free stuff to do too. Tons and, of free stuff. And so I'm done. <clears throat> I've been done like running my life in yes. financial fear. Yes. It's just being intentional with yes getting better at what I do professionally right. to create that. Right. That, that wealth, right. because I want to build wealth so I can give to others. Right. You know? As you, as you know, as, as well as, as I know, like, at, at the end of the day, I'm, you know, a grown-ass man, and yet still with my dad, you know, he can spend money on doing fun things and elaborate things, but ultimately, they're not even all that much fun if he's not present right. with me. Yeah. You know? So I'll call him out, like, hey, can you put your phone down? Or I have to remind myself to put my phone down. And just be present. And I think, I mean, again, thank God for the information age we live in. But uh, I have a buddy, too, who's, who lives up in Canada. He's like, hey, I need some help on, on date ideas with my wife. You're so good at this stuff. And, and I'm like, hey, I don't, I don't know if I'm good at it, but just Google it. Google yeah. free <laughs> free dates yeah. in Denver or free activities. Yeah. And there's so much that you can do that, like, you're right. That, that would just be another thing. Like, oh, money. That would yeah. stress you out. I got to can't do this until then. Like, you know what? We always make things more complicated than it needs to oh, be. Oh yeah. You know, bike rides, walks, yeah. coffee dates, totally. I mean, all these things. So it's just, it's being intentional and setting that stage and, yeah. you know, because they're busy with sports and all these things too. And it's like, Hey, we need to go on a daddy daughter date. Let's yeah. go. Yeah. That's Get huge. your bag. Let's go. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, you can hold me accountable for that for sure. Cause yeah. that's on my, that's on my, this is what 2020 has got to look like. Yeah. So that's awesome. Well, thank you. I mean, we could honestly probably talk for another full hour. Um, we can talk for a couple hours. days. We'll just have a camera yeah. follow us around. Yeah, exactly. We can do this for with Johnny and Rob. a long time. We'll just call this part one. Part one. I'm sure I'll have you back. Well, you'll we be on my show soon, too. Yeah. We'll, get, we'll get you set up to tell your story. That'd so. be cool. But yeah. we'll, we'll just keep the conversation going and keep going deeper because I'm sure those that are listening uh, will, would have a lot more questions. It'd be cool to actually get some questions back yeah. from, from listeners to, yeah. and ask you. And that sort of thing. But how can people get in touch with you if they wanted to reach out? Call me up, 970-331-4469. Awesome. That's the quickest, easiest way. Shoot me a text and say, hey, I heard you on the show. I want to talk to you. Yeah. Um, I mean, my main website is theaddictionrecoveryhub.com, okay. which is like everything I do. Theaddictionrecoveryhub.com. That is true. Beautiful. Yeah. 
Awesome. Well, thank you. Thanks yeah. for coming by. Thanks for chatting. Yeah. And that's our show for today. I want to thank you so much for listening. And hey, if you got something positive from this episode, I'd be honored if you'd share it on your favorite social platform. It also really helps to get the word out if you subscribe and leave a review of the show on Apple Podcasts because I read every single one. Something you think we could be doing better? I love constructive feedback as it's always welcome. And please feel free to email me at podcast at johnnyking.com with any questions or concerns. I'm also available on Instagram at Johnny King or on Facebook.com backslash Johnny King Men's Coach. Thanks again for joining me. I've been Johnny King. You've been awesome. And we'll catch up with you next time. Peace.